Hello, and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. I'm Benjamin Red, joined by Nizar Hassan, as always. Nizar, how's it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. We we have just an action-packed episode for everybody today. Lots of news. Yeah, uh, it, and, and it's going to be a little bit different from the way we... Normally we do, like, okay, last week uh, we, we get through that in, like, 10, 15 minutes, and then we have, like, a deep dive. Uh, this week there's just so much stuff... We're gonna do like mini deep dives into a few different things, and then uh, and, and then we're gonna go into uh, UNRWA and the funding issue with that. Which uh, we're, we're recording this on uh, Saturday, right? It'll be released uh, Monday or midnight uh, Sunday night. We're recording this Saturday. The decision was just announced like late last night, and we thought it would be a really good thing to talk about, but we didn't have the time to you know put together any sort of like full package on it or anything. So we're gonna do sort of like mini deep dives. It'll be a, a little weird episode, but there's so much. I'm, I'm really excited. Indeed, about a lot of things happened. Yeah, I, I mean, starting out with uh, just this whole uh, hurry ho- uh, phone hack story. Uh, the New York Times broke this on Friday. Uh, they they said that uh, the high-ranking UAE officials had asked uh, an Israeli spyware company to spy on a bunch of really big figures. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they asked this company to hack the phones of uh, the Emir of Qatar, an editor uh, in London, of a, of a newspaper in London, uh, and of Metab bin Abdullah, the, the son of the former king in, mm-hmm. in Saudi. And also our very own Saad al-Hariri. Wow. So, yeah, which is really, really interesting. The New York Times story didn't really go super in-depth about the Hariri part of this. But my newspaper, The Daily Star, we, we of course, picked up on this because this, this is our beat and everything. Um, and so Joseph Habouche, uh, my colleague, wrote a story about this. And, it, I mean, it's, it's really, really incredible that... Uh, that this it was like a member of the National Security Council of the UAE that allegedly, uh, according to emails that were leaked, uh, asked this company, it's an Israeli company, uh, which has a, a subsidiary or, or a sister company in Cyprus to hack Hariri's phone. And the way that this company does this, uh, or according to the New York Times reporting, is that they would send out like text messages. And if, if, if you click on the text oh, message- like phishing. Yeah. And and it, it, like they would be tailored as well, right? And so like uh, some of them would be like, oh, how to keep your tires from popping in the in the summer heat for for like people in the <laughs> Gulf or something, right? Uh, yeah, and and so like if you click this though, then this uh, software gets downloaded onto your device. Uh, surreptitiously and it can just like it can access your contacts and record phone calls and just like record ambient things so if you're having a meeting face to face but your phone happens to be on you it could record that as well and send it back to whoever uh, had bought this uh, the uh, these services from wow and so basically the 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 story is that uh, as reported by the, the the New York Times it is that according to these uh, leaked emails which which were presented as as evidence in court cases, that that's how we sort of have them. According to these emails, these people from the UAE asked this company, well, how do we know that your system is as good as you say it is? Can you prove it? And they provided these four phone numbers like to the Israeli company. We don't know if all of them worked. We know, uh, according to the New York Times, we know that the the uh, editor of Al Arab newspaper uh, based out of London was hacked. Uh, he He confirmed it. But we don't know if they were actually successful with any of the other three. I wonder what text message they sent to Saad Hariri. Hariri's office, uh, I don't think they're commenting yet. (laughs) 
but that's a story to follow for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 one of these like weird intrigue things of like inter-Arab politics, right? Yeah. And, and, but the interesting thing as well, though, is that you also have like the Israeli angle. All right, so that was a huge story. Uh, we, we also had a lot of um, more local things. Uh, there was a really grisly murder that happened earlier this week up in the north, just north of Tripoli in uh, Deramar or Minye. And supposedly it was like this guy got into an altercation in a market with a sheikh. And apparently he said something at some point uh, that the sheikh considered blasphemous. Mm-hmm. Even though it was... Really, sort of innocuous, right? Yeah, I mean, what he said, uh, I'll say it in Arabic first, is Halan Rabbi, which means get off my God, which doesn't isn't really blasphemous in the full sense because he's not insulting God. He's basically using God in a weird sentence um, that is quite common to use, but it's uh, the Sheikh considered it blasphemous and uh, things escalated really badly. Yeah, like the sheikh went to go like get his brothers and stuff and they tracked this guy down and then the, like clearly there was some sort of scuffle because uh, the sheikh was uh, injured, uh, one of his brothers or both of his brothers, I forget, were injured, uh, but the man was murdered and it was yeah. it was grisly. It was, uh, you know, I being a journalist you you see some things you don't necessarily want to see i saw a video of like the body after it you know after the guy had passed yeah, um, Hamid uh was the, the victim's name and yeah so i mean this is this is the kind of thing that you you don't want to see happen but does happen i guess occasionally although although with this you know like a friend of mine a member of the dehebi family like he, he was like, not even ISIS does this, you know, like that was his comment. Uh, yeah, it, it was it was so it was so grisly. There was a big outrage about this. And people were saying, like, what guarantees that this wouldn't happen to anyone? Just anyone who says this kind of common sentences who gets punished by a random person who doesn't like it. You know, this is this is very outrageous. And uh, it even provoked people to call for like execution, you know, the death penalty against the, the murderer. And one of them was Nicolas Ahnawi. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He the, tweeted. The, the, the former minister, new MP uh, for Beirut 2. From the Free Patriotic Movement. He tweeted saying we need to, to have death penalty to people who commit crimes like this one. And uh, yeah, as usual, any horrible crimes, the crime that happened in Lebanon provokes like a lot of calls for death penalty or re, like bringing back capital punishment. Yeah, and, and, and this week we actually did have death sentences handed down by the by the military tribunal the, against civilians. Uh, we, we've talked about this before, uh, but the military tribunal sentenced four men who were supposedly connected to the uh, 2015 uh, Burj al-Burajne suicide bombings. These bombings killed like 47 people, more than 200 people were injured. A really, really, really big event. Um, these four men were prosecuted in the military tribunal in connection with this so like they they had somehow supposedly helped the uh the suicide bombers carry this out um and and so like when you have things like this there there is some question as to whether the death penalty will actually be carried out because like you say there are these calls and, and they come up every so often uh and, and usually it's politicians like we we we've we saw like during the elections, for instance, there were a few more calls I noticed for the death penalty to come back. Yeah, right. That's true. 
But it, the, the, the weird thing to me is that there is no, like, past where, like, Lebanon consistently enforced the death penalty. It's always been sort of like in starts occasions, yeah. right? So, like, if you if you go back and look at it, and uh, so this uh, 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 this group called Rassemblement Canadien pour le Liban. Uh, apologies for my Your terrible French, French, French is horrible. Uh, pronunciation. Rassemblement Canadien pour le Liban. Yes, there we go. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, like, they did, they did a study back in, in 2004, uh, and, and they found that at least 51 people had been executed since 1947. And, like, so the majority of these people, though, were executed, 29 of them were executed between 1947 and 1960, right? And so mm-hmm. in this time period, when Lebanon was, like, a, a pretty young country, uh, that was the only time that really the death penalty was consistently enforced. And then... From like 1961 until Suleiman Frangier became president in 1970, you didn't have anything. You had like a decade where there were no executions at all. And then under Frangier, there were four more people who were executed. And then it took like another 10 years until 1983 when we had the execution of the man by hanging in Sanaya Park. Yeah. Right. Under committed the crime against the mother and her son. Yeah. Right, right. Which was you know, next time you're in Sanaya Park, like that was actually the site of an execution in 1983. And then after that, though, we, we had another period of like 10 years where there was nothing. And then in 1994, post-Civil War, the politicians passed a new law that expanded the number of, like the number of offenses that could the death penalty could be applied in, number one, and also restricted the judge's abilities to use their discretion, right? Mm-hmm. And so we saw between 94 and uh, 98, another 14 people were executed. And and then there was nothing from 1998 until 2004. And in 2004, we had the final three uh, people who were executed uh, in Lebanon until this day. And there hasn't been anything since. And so when we talk about there being like, oh, there's this moratorium on the death penalty since 2004 or something like that, th- this is sort of like natural if you go back and look at it there have been these expansive periods where the death penalty is gone and then it comes back yeah there hasn't been any decision to abolish it i, I don't think any of the political parties dares to do it but i remember there was a ministry of Ju- a minister of justice called brahim najjar who proposed when he was minister of justice i think in 2010 to abolish the death penalty um but i think death penalty is one of the things where like one of the things that all parties use for some populism every now and then so Maybe yeah. this is why they don't want to abolish it, and maybe for other reasons I don't understand. But there's a funny thing about death penalty, a very tragic detail, which is that usually when they want to kill someone, they try to look for someone from the other religion. So basically, if they're executing a Christian, they try to seek a Muslim to execute so that they do this parity thing, the balance. It's the same concept that is applied in state jobs, in public sector jobs. That is absolutely so they, nuts. So if you're executing a Christian, you need to find a Muslim as well to execute, basically. Exactly. So they, sometimes they wait so that they have this equal number of Christians and Muslims and then execute them all at once or in the same period of time. So, yeah, it's one of these very funny Lebanese and also sad Lebanese details. Um, looking forward a bit, there there are also, in, in addition to these four uh, people who have been sentenced to death, I mean, there there is a death row in Lebanon. You know, there are other people. Ahmed al-Asir, the firebrand sheikh, he was sentenced to death as well. Um, prosecutors are seeking the death penalty in the uh, the Rebecca Dykes murder case. And so this, this is something that, even if it's not being carried out, it is something that is like active in the judiciary and in, uh, in, in the law. 
Yeah, it's always there somewhere in the margins and they bring it in whenever there's something really outrageous that happens. Uh, we also had uh, the ISF Cybercrimes Bureau called in Wadiel Asmar for questioning. This is something that we, we spoke about before, right? Yeah. So he was he was it was requested that he come in for questioning or, or he was told to come in for questioning. He said this on social media. There's a big outcry because he's like the president of uh, the Lebanese Center for Human Rights. Uh, sort of big name uh, in sort of like human rights activist circles. And one of the founders of the Youth Think movement as well. So he's quite known in the activist circles as well. Right, right. Uh, and and so you had also this show of force a couple of weeks back with these 18 NGOs coming out saying this is unacceptable. This kind of thing cannot continue to happen. Yeah. Uh, so finally, this week uh, on Friday, he was called and he went in and he escalated things, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, he used Article 47 of the Criminal Procedures Code, uh, which says that a suspect or a witness can remain silent when being interrogated. And Asmar used this article to just say nothing at all. And then they put some pressure on him. Uh, the report said that they kicked out the lawyers from the room and they asked him again, put more pressure on him, but he didn't say anything. And they tried to make him sign an agreement. He refused to sign an agreement because what happened is Wadia uh, shared a post on Facebook that someone else had posted it called Sherb al-Khuri. And this guy, he's a young man who posted a joke about saying Sherbel. So when he posted this joke, this whole outrage happened and uh, he got numerous death threats. But all the cybercrime bureau did was investigate um, his post and look and uh, bring him in. They uh, asked him about the post. They forced him to deactivate his Facebook for a week, for a month. So he signed an agreement to deactivate his Facebook as the condition for being released. So Wadiya refused to do that because he knows the law. Yeah, it, just, and this is a big deal, though, because, yeah, I think this is the first case that I've heard of where somebody refused to comply with what the uh, what the ISF was asking. And a rem reminder as well, this is not just the ISF that's asking you to do this. They are asking you to do this based on court orders. And so you're defying a judge basically when you decide uh i'm not going to sign that i'm not going to delete a tweet or whatever it's a big deal and so what he was uh he's called back so this thursday he's supposed to go in again yeah what he said is basically when i am being tried by a court where i can defend myself then i accept and i will say what i know and i will cooperate fully but when I'm just a suspect and they're trying to force me into signing some agreements or doing some actions before a proper trial, then I'm not going to go with this uh, like shortcuts. Uh, he's not going to accept it. So legally, he has the total right to do it. And he makes total sense because what's happening is that they are someone is suing people. So the cybercrime is just acting on it. Right. They're calling these people in and then immediately they're finding solutions to it. So no proper trials. Mm, so if right, you're accusing me right. of a crime, then prove that I have made, I have done something wrong and then you can punish me for it rather than just me accepting this is like punishment. For, yeah, forcing things into the courtroom instead of just some back room of an ISF office. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, we also, we spoke about Unifil last week. Uh, well, the extension went through no, no fuss this year. Thank uh, God no, Nikki no Haley gave us one thing without the pain. <laughs> uh, also Thursday was International Day of the Disappeared. Just for those of you who are unfamiliar, during the Civil War, like thousands and thousands of people just disappeared here in Lebanon. And, and nobody knows what happened to them. Uh, estimates are that there's some 17,000 of them that 
that are just gone. And so, uh, and, and to this day, like there, there hasn't been like any sort of like fact finding, let's figure out where these people are, like that has like real political steam behind it. It's just one of these things where these families who have lost family members or uh, branches of their family, they just don't know what happened to these people. Yeah, it's very tragic, but like uh, the most frustrating thing is that there's no real effort to find out the fate of these people because like officials and politicians try not to um, dig out things from the past, from the civil war, you know, to to keep the peace or prevent any like sectarian. Yeah, there was never any real reconciliation from the civil war afterwards. No way, yeah. no, nothing. Like there are some formal things that happened, but nothing real, nothing on the commute, community level or uh, of something of the sort. And uh, for the 17 people, 17,000 people who have gone missing, they people don't know anything about them. So sometimes they know that they were kidnapped by this side. Sometimes they don't. Uh, sometimes they know that they were taken to Syria or another country, but in most times they don't even know that. And there was a story on, on, on Lebanese social media recently and some news sites picked it up that a family that was presumed dead during the civil war because they were kidnapped and no one knew anything about them, they just suddenly appeared on social media and someone recognized them and in a video or something. And they were like, this is the family that we thought was dead. So everyone oh, was wow. like kind of celebrating wow. it. Yeah, but it shows how ridiculous this is. Like, There's absolutely no investigation to the extent that someone is just alive and no one knows. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, at least like, like that's a happy ending, right? Yeah. Because if you assume that like your family member is dead or whatever, like it, it must be so great to find out, oh no, they're like they're there, they're living in Canada or something, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, also, so, so Thursday was the International Day of the Disappeared and then Friday was the 40th anniversary of Imam Musa Saylor's disappearance. Mm -hmm. uh, this uh, 40 years ago, he disappeared on a trip to uh, Libya and nobody knows what happened to him. You know, there's all sorts of theories about what might've happened, but nobody really knows. To this day, yeah, and and so it, 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 Musa Sadr is a, a really big figure as well. He founded the Amal movement that Nabi Berri uh, now leads. He's a member of the like the, the clerical elite, right? The Sadr family. Uh, yeah. You've heard of Muqtada Sadr in uh, in Iraq. Uh, they are I forget the exact relation, but they're cousins, right? Okay. Yeah. And Musa Sadr was um, like no doubt one of the main two or three figures in the early years of the civil war, uh, leading the Amal movement, creating a whole movement out of basically nothing and having a very, very interesting kind of approach to mobilizing people in south of Lebanon, like a combination of uh, class uh, conflict with religious elements. Um, but yeah, I mean, like what? historically, the Shiites were sort of like marginalized and oppressed, like the, the Christians and the Sunnis and like they shared power in Lebanon and and the Shiites largely like didn't didn't have as much power as their numbers would suggest they should have in a democratic society right definitely because they were like residents of uh, the countryside of the south and east of Lebanon and they were not included in any of the developmental projects right. uh, the big merchants who were running the country were all Beirut based etc so yeah and so like Sadr's movement like it really was like a political awakening really, uh, for, for the Shiite community here Definitely. in Lebanon. And, and really brought, it, it was the beginning of like bringing the Shiites into power, like it, into the power sharing mechanisms of the state. Right. Yeah. And, and so to, uh, and so he's, he's like, he's like, it's such a huge deal. Uh, it, it, I don't think he can really be 
overstated. His importance can be overstated, especially within uh, the Shiite community, especially uh, with uh, the followers of, of Amal. And so on, on Friday, there was the, the 40th anniversary, uh, and Nabi Berri went to Baalbek to give a speech commemorating this. And of course, he did commemorate this, but he also spoke about, uh, you know, some political topics. Yeah. Uh, and it was interesting, like the, the what seemed like the biggest cheer of the speech came after him saying that, like, we need to, like, legalize cannabis production. Yeah, that's his new job. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently, apparently... Uh, Amal uh, introduced a bill this uh, this past week on Wednesday uh, in order to do just that. Um, and and so th- this is, it seems as though things are moving forward on this front. This is something that's been talked about for a really long time. Like Walid Jublat has been a big proponent of it for a very long time. Uh, and and this with, with this McKinsey report that nobody has seen yet, but uh, we all hear about uh, cannabis production is one of the recommendations that Lebanon should do this. Um, yeah, and most importantly, in my opinion, was the tensions with Jamil Sayed, the new MP who came um, on a Hezbollah list uh, in Baalbekir Hilmel district. So Jamil Sayed made this like press conference and some tweets um, distinguishing between the Shiites of the resistance and the Shiites of the state. And like people were picking up on this because there's some extent of truth to that because Amal is known as the Shiite party that is kind of controlling the state part of like of the of the equation and Hezbollah more the military side. So even yeah. among like their beneficiaries, they get totally different things. Uh, Hezbollah's people get benefits from Hezbollah and their institutions. Amal's people get jobs in the state. So Biri's move to legalization is uh, seen as a response to that telling the what is called the Shiites of the resistance that Birri, meaning the Shiites of the state, has not forgotten about you and that they will uh, do what you have been asking for a long time, which is legalizing this uh, sector because it will be around $1 billion of production and uh, formalizing it will make a lot of these people's lives easier. So, And it's interesting the way that he wants to legalize it too. There, there are sort of two paths that have been put forward for legalization. One of them is uh, what what he wants to do, what the Amal movement wants to do, which is like create sort of what the state already does with tobacco and have this regie that um, controls everything and which Birri's party is rumored to control, right? Yeah. Uh, this, is, this is the rumor. Uh, and, and so they, they want to duplicate that and, and do that with cannabis. The other side of that uh, the other proposal is um, a more market-based solution, um, which I mean, maybe we should get into the details of this at some point in the future. Uh, yeah. But basically, like some people say, like, oh, no, th- like if we do another regime, but for the cannabis uh, market, then that's just going to cause all this corruption and farmers are going to get screwed. Right. Mm. Uh, and, and everybody's going to get screwed from this, except for the people who are benefiting from the corruption. That's the argument against it. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, the other argument would be that even in the private sector, this the same things can happen, but with different mechanisms. So if you have right. concentration of cannabis production under one or two hands in the whole area, then you also have huge businesses who will maybe probably bribe people in the States and get exactly what they would get uh, if they were, if they owned the sector as a whole like they can do a mono- make a have a monopoly or a duopoly over the sector and more importantly uh, when it's in the private hands then whoever is in the state doesn't matter right so the argument against privatization of these sectors is that sectors like 
drug production are very sensitive in terms of where they export, uh, what they do with the products. Uh, and if it's the private sector, it's more difficult to hold them accountable for what they're doing as, as opposed to having an official state policy on these things. So it's a complicated issue. We'll talk about it in the future for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is this is, this is not a story that's going away. Um, speaking of like government institutions, though, uh, and everything, uh, we had an interesting incident this week. It, you know, we've talked about the airport, the problems with the airport, right? Yeah. And the, the overcrowding, especially in the month of August, peak month, too many passengers, all sorts of problems. There was also Hajj during this time and Eid. Uh, so the airport has been having a lot of problems. Um, the minister that oversees the airport, uh, Yusuf Finianos, the uh, minister of public, uh, of transportation, public works, uh, he blamed the council for development and reconstruction for the problems this week, which is interesting though, because in the daily star, uh, my newspaper, we spoke to, or my colleagues spoke to uh, a source from the CDR who then like blamed the finance ministry, uh, <laughs> The finance ministry is controlled by the Amal movement, and supposedly the Amal movement only gave the position of public works minister to Fenianos with the understanding that he wouldn't change anything major. So it's like this giant circle yeah. of like and everybody. And CDR to, to maybe, for people who are not familiar with CDR, CDR is an institution that directly that is directly linked to the prime minister's office. So it's known as Hariri's institution. Right, right. Although, um, as with all state institutions, everybody's got a little piece of the pie, right? The yeah. Nabi Berri's brother is uh, a big figure in CDR, right? Exactly. And um, Hezbollah is trying to push for the Ministry of Planning in order to kind of sideline CDR and bring some or all of its powers into a ministry that one of its, minister would, its ministers would control. So it's always a battle on uh, state institutions. Yeah, yeah. So going back to the airport really quickly, it's designed for like 6 million people per year uh, to pass through. Last year, uh, they say 8.2 million went through. More obviously, or this year is going to be more than last year. So it's really over capacity. There's this like emergency 90, like around $90 million plan to relieve congestion. Uh, but that requires like the funding to happen. And so this is what the CDR was saying, like, well, we can't we need the finance ministry to give us the funds first, otherwise we can't do anything. And <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not exactly sure if $90 million of what this is going to do, but supposedly this would relieve congestion. Uh, but they do have a long-term plan as well, which is part of the uh, capital investment program, yep. like $500 million it, to like make the capacity like 20 million packs a year, something like that. Yeah. Uh, but that that's not that's a long term thing like that. The contract wouldn't even be awarded for that until like 2020. So we're we're just waiting on that. And it seems not as though like we, we, we can't do the long term thing because it's going to take a long time. The short term thing also isn't happening. So it's just like, I mean, summer's over. So we we've suffered through the worst of it. So <laughs> yeah. we can whatever. wait another year. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, and and also uh, speaking of infrastructure, Sidon did not have water for like three or four days uh, earlier last week. Uh, and this this ended up sparking protests on Monday. They like burnt tires, blocked roads and stuff like this. And it, it got the attention of people. Uh, it got the attention of both of the MPs for, for Saida, Osama Saad and uh, Bahia uh, Hariri. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and things got done, right? Some like a, a crew from EDL reportedly showed up like overnight Monday to Tuesday and fixed the problems. Apparently there's a problem with like the water pumps and the electricity of the water pumps. 
and so they, and they fixed it and so then water uh, started to return so this is uh you know we, we've spoken about edl before and the problems with edl we've spoken like some about wastewater but we haven't really spoken about water but water is also just like terrible uh, it, like yeah no matter what the infrastructure you're looking at in lebanon is it's just shit uh it, it's it's really bad uh, and water is no exception huge problems there we'll have to do an episode at some point on it definitely definitely uh, but i think it's interesting what you said that things got done because it's probably just a sign of how much it matters that a city is politically or an area is politically contested because i think if it was akar instead of saida no one would be really interested in the story, even if they burned some tires. But Saida is mm. really hot after the elections with Osama Saad proving that he's stronger or maybe as strong as Hariri in the area, achieving these big results. So even with the proportion system, he's comfortable with his leadership and uh, what he represents in Saida. And on the other hand, Hariri wants to uh, bring people as much as possible to his side with Bahia Hariri obviously leading there. But it's interesting when there are all these tensions that maybe that's the reason things get... Are you, are you saying that maybe faster. it's a good idea to have like MPs from different sides? Yeah. Like it has some sort of like competition? Yeah, they like want to give both they, they both want to give favors to like provide services or whatever, gain credit for something, uh, for giving people something. At the same time, they both uh, can't afford to let people shout in the streets without doing anything because... They represent the area. Right. So with all of these factors, I think it's a positive thing to have political competition in the area. Maybe it increases the services. We should do a study about that. I recommend it in my think tank. <laughs> you should. You should. Uh, and speaking of politics, I just want to note a couple of things really quickly. Uh, Salah uh, Salem, who was a candidate in Beirut 2, he appealed the election results. He, he lost and he appealed the election results. Uh, he was one of 17 appeals. And he actually said, I'm not appealing anymore. Uh, he, he withdrew his appeal, citing pressure being put on Hariri, who he had appealed against, which is interesting. It is sort of like a case of Sunni solidarity, sort of, right? Uh, but it's weird because he was literally running against Hariri. Yeah, but I guess now it's part of these, um, this wave of like support for Hariri because it seems that he's subjected to too much pressure. Um, yeah, which we'll get to in just a second. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but this story totally unrelated to the story, but it kind of reminded me of a Lebanese proverb that says, I wonder how much he's got paid for that. <laughs> totally unrelated. <laughs> yeah. Um, so speaking of hurry, though, uh, cabinet formation, my favorite subject in the world. I wonder how it's still your favorite. It's just there's a always like story twists now. and turns so and everything. No, I'm <laughs> like I I'm, I'm actually still somewhat optimistic. So we're we're at 102 days as of Monday since Rui was designated as prime minister. 104 days without a government, and so we we talked a little bit last week about how this thing about Syria relations had had come to the forefront and should Syrian uh, reestablishment of Syrian relations or normalization of Syrian relations rather. Uh, be a, a prerequisite for a formation of a government. And Saad Hariri had just slapped that idea down, right? Well, this week, on, uh, last Sunday, rather, uh, Nasrallah came out and, and actually said, no, let's not do this. Let's not make it uh, a, a prerequisite for the formation of a government, which seems sort of like him giving a bit to uh, ease the formation of a cabinet. And I think that was, allow me to say, this, this was probably a blow to Jabran Basile, because Nasrallah 
by saying that is basically saying it's not us who's obstructing the government for me the cabinet formation it's someone else yeah. with different demands right right so right. it's probably a blow to Gibran Basile yeah one that yeah. he deserves um i I thought it was interesting what nasrullah said uh, because there's it's it's a bit nuanced right he basically said that like this issue with syria and the issue of the policy statement can wait until after formation of government so he's not really just giving carte blanche this he's not just like giving hurry all the marbles or anything no, he's uh, he's holding back just a little bit and saying, okay, well, let's get the names on paper, let's get the formation done, and then we'll have this discussion afterwards, basically immediately afterwards, because you have to talk about it immediately if you're talking about the uh, the cabinet station, uh, the, the cabinet uh, statement, right? Exactly, Bayan Luizari. But this is kind of reflective reflective of how Lebanese politics happen in terms of cabinet formation as opposed to other countries with more democratic and less consultational systems. The fact that he said the policy statement can be postponed means that it doesn't matter who's in which ministry, it doesn't matter how the cabinet is formed, we'll agree on the policies later. Whereas in other countries, when you hear news about cabinet formation, the major thing is that each party wants a specific ministry to do specific policies. So policies right. are the requirement or like the fundament- <laughs> fundamentals from which right. they go on to build a, a cabinet. So it's kind of the other way around here, just seats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, also, we uh, Hariri is set to meet with Basile and Aoun very soon. We, we just passed the September 1st deadline, right? where Aoun said, like, I've got this plan. If we don't have a government by September 1st, I'm going to release this plan or whatever. So Haruri is supposed to meet. He's, he wants to meet with Basile first and then Aoun. And supposedly he's going to present uh, another lineup. Uh, some people are casting this as like a big breakthrough or something, but it's it, it's not. He's presented a, at least one lineup before, right? So we're, we're, we're going to have to see what happens with Haruri's, uh, what he puts forward, and then what Aoun does, right? Um, and what is Aoun's plan that he's been coming up with that is going to cause, like, facilitate uh, the formation of a cabinet? And there, there are a few ideas of of what this could be. I, I think we should mm-hmm. run through that a bit. I mean, first off, it, it could all be bluster, right? Yeah. I, I don't really think that's the case because Aoun's uh, reputation, I think he sees his reputation as riding on this mm-hmm. uh, to a degree. Uh, because he wants to be seen as a, a strong president, somebody who can get things done. And if he cannot facilitate a government formation, then that's really problematic for him. Mm-hmm. So uh, so he could do nothing, but I don't think that's really the case. He could, he could also decide to like, just sort of get more hands on, right? He's been sort of, he's had this image that he's above the fray right now. Like, oh no, you, you're coming to talk to me, Shaja, you need to talk to Gibran Basile. So there's this idea that Aoun's been sort of above the fray, and now maybe he might get a little bit more hands-on. Yeah. Uh, that's a possibility, I think. Uh, but also there are some more concrete possibilities out there. One of the things that's been bandied about is, is it possible to get rid of the prime minister designate? And I think, I think this is, uh, like the constitution doesn't say anything about this. Right. And so there are different interpretations of what can be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, 
I'm not going to get into that right now because it's like really, really in-depth and really like legal easy. But basically, long story short, there's an argument that says, yeah, the president or the president with acting on the consultation of parliament can get rid of the prime minister designate because they are the ones who put the prime minister designate in his position, right? And mm-hmm. then there's also another argument that says the constitution does not say anything about this. The constitution is silent on this, whereas it talks about getting rid of everybody else. It never talks about getting rid of the prime minister designate, so you can't. One side obviously would favor like presidential power. The other side would favor uh, uh, premiers, the premier's power. Right. Mm. Oh, that's why we heard Saad Hariri talking about the violation of the prime minister's powers when all this news about Aoun's ultimatum being the 1st of September were coming up. Saad Hariri said, I'm not accountable for it to respond to this kind of threat, political threatening, because this would be a violation of my powers. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So to him, he has been given the task of forming government and then they should give him the full powers and the time he needs to do it. Right. Um, there's another possibility out there, though, that I want to I, I've been holding this in because I didn't want to put it out there because it, it's it's just such a terrible idea. But it was hinted at this week by a major politician. So I'm just going to put it out there for our listeners. You you guys will be like the like on the cutting edge of what potentially could happen. Wow. Scoop, uh, scoop. <laughs> so there was this thing that happened. Uh, everybody knows about Belgium and their problems with forming a government uh, between like 2007 and 2013. Well, one of the things they did at one point they appointed an interim government, fully empowered, but an interim government. Uh, and it lasted like for three months from December to March. And and it actually, it was interim. They handed over to a different government after that. So my worry is that the Lebanese politicians might look at this as a potential example. Um, mm. And if that happens, you know, what, what would it be? They, they would figure out some constitutional way of constraining the interim government time-wise and say like, okay, so you're around for three months or six months or a year or something like that, but you will be fully empowered to, you know, as, as, as a caretaker government, you, you can't take most decisions, right? Make a fully empowered government for this period of time. And then mm-hmm. after that period of time, we'll, we'll try to uh, form a real government again. Mm-hmm. Well, if that happens, what is the interim government gonna be? It's going to be the same government that's in place right now. It's going to be the caretaker government. Yeah. There, there, there isn't any scope for there to be anything different. And so my worry is this is going to happen. And we we actually had, we had uh, Najim Ati, former prime minister uh, and, and current member of parliament, come out this week. And it's, he sort of hinted at it, you know, say, talked about like empowering the role of, of the current government. Yeah, activating right? it. Yeah, Activating it. Because he said it's almost impossible to form a government in the short term. Right. So so he didn't talk about Belgium or an interim government or anything like that. But he did, I think, hint very clearly at this possibility. And mm-hmm. and if there isn't a, a government formed, this is something that that could come up as, as a potential solution, which I think would be terrible. You know, we had elections. We really should have a new government. But maybe this is going to happen if they're not able to form a government. I mean, I don't think it's terrible because I think the same exact process is happening. So the only difference would be that, that probably some people will have a service ministry they didn't have, or maybe Jerome Basile will get one more minister, but no one cares. Like if they just get working, if they get to work and they allow to the, the economy to go, come back to a certain degree of peace, 
things will 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 be smooth will be okay no one cares right what's the get, difference yeah right. what's the difference yeah. right yeah all they're gonna do is switch a couple of ministries swap a couple of ministries and put a new ministry here or there maybe adding one or two having 32 min- ministries seven or eight of them are useless no one cares what we care what people care about here is that things get going and no one has the excuse of not doing something and especially in the private sector people a lot of businesses uh, kind of hold their operations or people are hesitant to bring money into Lebanon until a government is formed and, and all of thing. all of the commitments made at cedar at Paris for the, the donor conference they're contingent on a government being in place to like take a bunch of decisions exactly. right so yeah I mean th- this is one way out and, and I guess yeah maybe at the end of the day it isn't the worst thing in the world I I think it would be kind of sad uh, and and honestly like I don't know like I, I'm, I'm still pretty optimistic you know like we're we're in this period where if a government's going to be formed it's going to be formed now you know in the next few weeks yeah, and I hope my only big major hope out of this whole thing is that the next minister for women affairs is not a man. Okay, we currently have this minister for women's affairs who's Jean Ogasapian, future movement. Yeah, yeah. So I just hope that if they're gonna change anything, at least change this guy. <laughs> Okay, so uh, we, we talked about this at the at the top of the episode. The U.S. cut its funding to UNRWA just last night, just Friday Friday night, and the, the this is a really big deal because the U.S. was the, like the largest individual donor, right? About a third of the agency's budget. Uh, the budget's like one billion dollars, something like that, one point one billion dollars. But the U.S. had been sort of telegraphing this move for a while. The Trump administration had, you know, they they uh, reduced funding. Uh, was it earlier this year from like one hundred thirty million? They were supposed to pay. 130 million and said, oh, we're going to pay 65 million uh, instead. They had also just a week ago cut funding for projects in the West Bank and Gaza that were administered through uh, USAID. And everybody was expecting the administration to come out and say, okay, so we're cutting off UNRWA completely. Friday night, they did. Uh, it was it was a statement from uh, Heather Nauert, who is a, a former Fox News TV personality, oh. uh, but now a high-ranking member of the State Department. Uh, Not very surprising. Yeah, it's, <laughs> you know, <laughs> these things happen. Uh, and, and, and in her statement, she basically cited the money issue. You know, basically, bottom line, U.S. doesn't want to pay anymore. Like, th- this is too much money, and we're not getting r- a return for this. The, uh, she called UNRWA irredeemably flawed, also referenced UNRWA's endlessly and exponentially expanding community of entitled beneficiaries, which I think is... An interesting way of saying uh, people have children. And she's know? protesting that. <laughs> yeah, it's, wow. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, okay, we, we knew this. And, and of course, like, there, there was this like, weird passage about like, a, a think of the children passage that really just rings hollow, I think, to, to anyone. You know, like, oh, the children are the future of the Middle East uh, and the future uh, you know, for the community. And so we want to do something better for them because the UNRWA is failing them. So what she's saying is the children of the future so don't have them. I, logically, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Trump's policy on Palestine has really escalated in a very horrible direction. Like, we didn't expect it to be that bad. You know, cutting all aid to Palestinians is something very dramatic because the major part of how the Palestinians have been sustaining themselves is through aids like coming in through the Palestinian Authority or through private organizations like NGOs, etc., or international governmental organizations. But like cutting this aid is just basically blackmailing the Palestinians into a peace deal that they do not want with Israel. Well, that's that's the idea, right? That some people think this is sort of like there's this grand plan and, and this is the idea. So Trump earlier this year moved the embassy to Jerusalem 
and and he you know boasts that he took Jerusalem off the table right uh, in negotiations, uh, which is like long been one of the huge sticking points uh, yeah. of the peace process. Uh, number two, refugee returns. That's been the, the right to return. Palestinians to go back to their homeland. That's been another huge sticking point. And so this is being viewed, this view, uh, this move here is being viewed as also similarly taking that off the table, right? It seems that Trump is one of the most anti-Palestinian U.S. presidents. It's safe to say, it's safe to say that, I think. Well, he would, he would dispute that. I mean, he did everything to provoke Palestinians. He moved the embassy to Jerusalem even though half the world was telling him, you're crazy, don't do that. He's cutting aid, which is like literally a matter of life and death. So his decisions are leading, will lead to the death of probably hundreds of Palestinians in the next year or two, and children's, children not getting their books, etc. All of these things that we can imagine, their service, basic services on which they survive, especially in refugee camps outside of the West Bank and in Gaza, where a lot of people rely, rely on UNRWA services. So it seems that he must have a plan. If, if he's not thinking that he can do that regardless of what would happen in the future, if it's not like a very meticulous plan to force them into a peace deal, then it's a, I think it's a crazy direction which they are going because we cannot see any positive outcome out of this. And, and that's the thing, an like pe- people are saying that, oh, that like this is like this overarching plan. I don't agree with that. Like I, I just don't see the Trump administration as having this meticulous plan uh, about all of this. I see it as a series of moves that, yeah, they do kind of fit together, but they fit together largely because they play like really, really well with Trump's base. Moving the embassy to Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, moving the embassy to Jerusalem has been like a cause celeb uh, amongst like evangelicals, uh, it, like pro-Zionist evangelicals for a long time. And anything that is pro-Israel, anti-Palestine, it just plays really, really well uh, with that demographic in the U.S. Yeah. And so I, I, I don't think that there's really a, like a grand meticulous strategy on this. I think it's just like a series of moves that, yeah, they do go together in a certain way, but it's because they play so well with the base. Regardless, though, like this has real effects on the ground here, right? Here in Lebanon, UNRWA provides a lot of services, provide health services, education services, social services to uh, hundreds of thousands of Palestinian refugees who who are here in Lebanon, right? There was a census done last year that said like 174,000 Palestinians are here in Lebanon. That's the lowest estimate. Right, ever. right. Like there's, it's at least that much. The UNRWA rules have like 450,000, uh, although that probably includes like uh, people who have died who weren't taken off the rolls, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so somewhere in between, it's hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who are affected uh, by this, potentially affected by this. And there's a, there's a big uh, funding shortfall, uh, right? Uh, now it's uh, what, $200, $300 million? Yeah, around $250. And, and so there's this question as to, uh, there has been long a question, you know, for the past few months, whether you know, UNRWA here would be able, would have enough money to open the schools this fall. Coincidentally enough, on Monday, UNRWA schools were supposed to open. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I assume that's still going forward. I, I don't know, though. Yeah, I think I think we should like, we can summarize it this way. UNRWA to Palestinian refugees in Lebanon and Palestinian camps is the state, is not the state in the military or like uh, the authority sense. But it is the state in terms of public services. What you expect from your state in terms of services, Palestinians expect from UNRWA. This is the basically the minimum that 
the world could do for Palestinians who have lost their homeland. That's, that was kind of, I think, the moral background of the story. But right now with these cuts, it's uh, it's really uncertain what can, can uh, what can come out of this, for, for example, Palestinian refugees in Lebanon, because obviously they're not going to be able to return to Palestine. The naturalization debate here is very hot. No one accepts naturalization except some left-wing activists, but none of the major political parties accept it in any way. So what's going to happen to these people without basic services, with the world kind of turning a blind eye to their suffering and the Lebanese state never offering any services at all to these people and banning them from like taking most of the jobs that they can take or owning houses? It's going to be a very sensitive and probably tragic situation if the U.S. policy doesn't change anytime soon. Or if uh, other countries don't rush to fill that gap as well, right? Yeah. So maybe China should do that because it's doing that every in every sector. Maybe it's one of the places where China would come in. I mean, maybe that'd be a really good thing. Maybe you know. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I, I guess we're we're gonna have to find out if the schools actually open Monday. Uh, <laughs> we'll find out, yeah, and so. and we'll we'll go from there. It's, I know I know this this episode has been sort of a, a grab bag. It's been. It, it's been a departure from our usual uh, our usual format, right? Yeah. But yeah, we're we'll be back probably with our regular format next week. But there's just so much this week. Just oh my god. I know it's yeah. already a long episode, although <laughs> we don't have a special topic. So excuse yeah. us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. The Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar El-Fil.